Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. On this episode, I talked to Stephen Price, whose book Lampedusa won the 2020 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Stephen is the author of three novels, including Lampedusa. In addition to winning the Ethel Wilson, Lampedusa was also shortlisted for the Giller Prize. His book, By Gaslight, which was published in 2016, was longlisted for the Giller as well. In 2011, he published Into That Darkness, and he's also written two award-winning books of poetry. Lampedusa is, as I mentioned, Stephen's third novel. In its pages, readers are taken back in time as Stephen reimagines the life and work of the Italian author Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa. Giuseppe wrote the acclaimed book The Leopard, which was published a year after his death in 1958. Lampedusa grapples with themes around legacy and what we leave the world after we're gone loss and longing, and of course, what it's like to live a creative life. Stephen starts our conversation with a reading from Lampedusa. He went downstairs to the smaller library and closed the doors behind him and stood with his back to them and breathed, his smile fading slowly. He felt suddenly tired disappointed at himself for having failed to speak of the emphysema. It would only be the more awkward now. He loosened his tie and took off his jacket and draped it over a chair, grateful at least that Orlando would not be coming for his lectures. Let us pray, Coniglio had said. Prayer, he thought wearily. An image came to him, the stone church he had passed that morning in the narrow piazza, and he thought how that church had survived so many hundreds of years, how 95 years earlier on that same morning, the same low, soothing tidal drone of voices could have been heard, before Italy was Italy, before Garibaldi had begun his conquest, and the Lampedusas, their decline. He sat down, opened his notebook, unscrewed the lid of his blue bureau. From his shirt pocket, he withdrew his reading glasses and unfolded them and put them on. Earlier that morning, while talking to Lucio, he had found something in his mind, vivid, like a memory, though it was no memory. This had not happened to him before. It was a man, poised and reticent and powerful, a man vulnerable to sudden beauty, overwhelmed by his own sensuous nature. He would locate this man on the afternoon of Garibaldi's landing, away from the heat and clatter of rifles, and submerge him instead in the quietude and gloom of a family prayer. He had always supposed his great-grandfather to be a man who could not bear to grow old, and for whom dying meant extinction. But what he had not realized was that sensuousness and ruin were inseparable, and that to live overwhelmed by the past was its own kind of extinction. It seemed to him now that the man he saw, gruff, dignified, autocratic, who both was and was not his great-grandfather, this man's very passion for life must be the cause of his decline. 
He was surprised at how easily the sentences came, one upon another, once he began. And he wrote with a kind of anguish, afraid he would lose the thread or that the sentences would twist back upon themselves. He had not written before with the rigorous imagination needed of art, and he had always supposed a guiding intelligence necessary on the part of any artist. But here, the story came almost ready-made, as if certain of itself, as if he were both writing it and being written by it. His astronomer prince would stand immaculate at the edge of his sunlit terrace and stare out at the shifting world and understand that what seemed to be passing had in truth already passed. Dust and heat and a cyclone at his thighs in the golden light. When he paused, the pen hovering an inch above the paper, his hand was aching. He was surprised to see he had written several pages. He rose and crossed to the window, an old, fat, rumpled figure reflected there, sleeves bunched above his wrists. And he worked through the next sentence in his mind, finding the right expression, and then he returned to his desk and sat and read back what he had written. He crossed out the word lilting, and then he wrote it back in. He could hear Lissy calling to her black spaniel in the hall, the scrape of claws on the hardwood, the hinges of the terrace door squeaking like the faint sounds in a dream. The evening dark was silvery and still. He worked with a sober clarity, some part of himself stripped away, a concentration rising in him that he had not felt since his youth, a thing liquid and powerful and cold and immersive. And when the words slowed, he slowed and waited, calm, until the words came again and his hand began to move, deliberate, steady, soft across the soft paper, his fingertips afire in the late and furious hour. Maybe, I guess my first question is if you can kind of uh, share a little bit in this, in the reading you just did, we're introduced to Giuseppe and also to the book. We don't know it's the book yet, but we can see the beginnings of it. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the story that inspired your story. About the leopard or yes. about Giuseppe's life. Yeah. Um, well, my novel, of course, is, tells the story of the real life Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa uh, in the last years of his life, in the midst of poverty, having come down in the world and in the shadow of, of the Second World War and all the destruction in Sicily. He sat down uh, and spent the last years he had writing a novel, Il Gatto Pardo, The Leopard, which was not published in his lifetime. And he died in despair. He'd had it rejected twice, and he believed that it was not going to be published. And then shortly after his death, about a year after he died, it was accepted for publication by a third publisher, was published. It won the Striga Prize, which was considered Italy's Pulitzer Prize, their highest honor. Uh, it became a best-selling novel. It was turned into a beautiful film a few years later uh, by Visconti, uh, starring Alain Delon, Claudia Cardinale, and all these great stars of the 60s. Uh, it's never been out of print. It's now um, one of the best-selling novels uh, that Italy has ever seen, and is considered one of the greatest works of, of literature in the language. Now, that was pretty much all I knew uh, as a reader of The Leopard um, about his story. And it seemed like a, uh, both a cautionary table and tale and almost a kind of fable for the young and, and aspiring writer. Um, this, this creator of genius who could never be quite brave enough to sit down and do the one thing that he'd longed his whole life to do, which was to write a book. 
And then he finally does. And the book he creates is exquisite, but nobody cares and nobody wants it. Uh, but it is honored and celebrated after his death. And for me as a writer, I, you know, I always thought that story was kind of interesting. You know, is it a story of redemption that this story, that this novel was finally celebrated and recognized for the great achievement it was, or is it a, is it a heartbreaking story, a, a tragedy because the writer himself never got to see that. And he believed as he was dying that it wouldn't be published. And it was in his mind. It was one of the, the last notes that he left before he died was a note to begging his wife, Alessandra, and, and his adopted son, Giochino, to please continue to try to get the leopard published, but under no circumstances were they to public, pay for it. In other words, he didn't want it self-published. He wanted it vindicated by a genuine publisher. And that was, that was about all I knew. Now, the book itself, The Leopard, I read in my early 20s, and I, I was moved by its strangeness. I was a young aspiring writer, um, a student at the University of Victoria, and I didn't know what to make of it. Its shape, its structure was so different um, from anything that I'd been reading up till that point. And it wasn't just that it was set in Sicily. It was written in the 50s, but it's set in the 1870s or so across a couple of decades and, and charting a history of uh, the unification of Italy that I knew nothing about. And I wasn't particularly interested in as a young man, but it was its structure, the shape of the book, uh, the way it plays with time that was so different from anything that was being published, uh, at least in the 90s. But I think it's a, it's a genuinely unique work. I think part of that is because Tomasi de Lampedusa was influenced by the great modernists. He, he was aspiring to write a, a, a Sicilian Ulysses like Joyce. Um, but the book itself come, that emerged is, is oddly classical. Uh, and the, I think the way that the two influences met in him was, was, was very unusual. Anyways, he, I, I knew nothing about him. Um, I just, I kept rereading the book every few years, moved by it, finding something new in it. And then I found a biography um, written by David Gilmore called The Last Leopard, which was uh, all about his life. And I picked it up um, in a used bookstore. Uh, this would be several years ago now, just out of interest, thinking, how could somebody write an entire biography about this man that, that repeatedly it said in these prefaces and forwards that he, he did nothing with his life until he sat down to write a book. Well, when I started reading the biography, I was, I was astounded by the full, rich, complicated life that he had lived. And he seemed like, he seemed like a character in his own novel in so many ways, which makes sense because to some extent, the novel becomes a kind of self-portrait of him, even though it's, it's of course, strictly speaking, not. But what I did recognize is I saw that you could lift the events of his life, the, the peaks and the troughs um, in chronological order out of his life and lay them on top of the strange structure of the novel that he'd written. Uh, and the one fit perfectly with the other, like the pieces of a puzzle. And when I saw that, I saw the potential to write uh, his life shaped like the book he had written. And it seemed to me to be saying something interesting about art and life and how the one informs the other. And that seemed to me, um, it seemed to me there was a book there uh, and that's where this book came from. Yeah. I mean, Giuseppe is, he's such a fascinating and complex character. Like you said, you know, to say that he did nothing with his life seems, um, seems incorrect. Just, I mean, and I, I don't know much more about him than what I read in the pages of your book, but um, he seemed like this terribly conflicted and this man uh, in transition, he's watching his, his past, he's looking to the future. What were the challenges you faced in kind of tackling this very complex character who is a real, who was a real person, who people know and, 
but also kind of putting your own take on him? Well, it's a strange sort of challenge to write uh, a novel with, with real people in it. Um, my previous novel by Gaslight followed two characters. One was a, a character named William Pinkerton, who was a real person who really lived, who's the son of Alan Pinkerton, who founded the, the detective agency. And the other one was a character named Adam Fool, who was entirely fictional. Uh, so I'd, I'd had a bit of um, experience writing a real lived-in character, but the story I was telling was made up. Uh, I set the, that novel in a time in which there, there was no information about where William Pinkerton was or what he was doing. Uh, so I, I had a certain amount of latitude. This particular novel tells a true, the true life, the true story. Uh, so I, I found myself constrained by the events of his life, the events of Giuseppe's life. But the scenes in the book are filled in by me. Um, they're, all the dialogue is me, the, and therefore the characterizations are me. I mean, the book is fiction through and through. I would never recommend anyone read it as nonfiction. I, I think it would be disastrous. But what I will say is that all of fiction exists in, in the gray zones, the gray areas, you know, uh, and history is, is what we've chosen to remember. And I think history, uh, fiction to some extent is charting what we have allowed ourselves to forget and to bring that back. And I do believe that, that this novel, I like to believe that, that if Giuseppe somewhere were to come across this book and read it, he would see a resemblance, although I don't fool myself into thinking he would see himself. I like to think there'd be a spiritual resemblance there. Hmm. One of the, the themes I really picked up on in the book was this idea of, of legacy and, and what we leave behind. And of course, the book itself was his legacy, but he was also toiling with this in so many other ways with his adopted son, Gio, and with the estates and his family name. What drew you to that theme in the book? And what was so interesting for you about writing about that idea? To a certain extent, that was circumscribed by the, the project itself. The ambition for Giuseppe in his last years to write a novel was his belief and his faith that he could create something of lasting value and leave something behind. And as soon as you, I realized that about his impulse for the writing of the book, I understood that legacy was going to be central. It's also, I think, to, to a certain extent, the result of... of of who he was, you know, I, here in Canada, we don't have aristocrats and we, you know, it, very few of us can trace our family lineages back 500 years uh, or, or more. But in Sicily, the old families are very, very old and the, the, the people born into them seem to take it upon themselves to, to act as living memories uh, of, of, of their families. They're sort of custodians of not just the title, but, but the family history. I had the good fortune when I was in Palermo to, to meet Giochino Lanza, uh, who's a main, major character in this book. And I was quite anxious and nervous. Um, and he took me on a, a tour of the Palazzo where Giuseppe and, and Alessandra had lived out their last years. And as we walked through the rooms, Giochino would point to every piece of furniture every piece of wall decoration, every carpet, and there would be a long story there. This, this carpet came over with my family in 1611 from, from Spain with my, even name off some ancestor. And then this, this piece of furniture was, was reclaimed from the Palazzo, blah, 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 in 1812 after a fire. He, he, all of it, he knew all, every single part of it. 
Uh, and it was part of the way that he was charting who he was. And that sense of responsibility, that sense of, of being deserving of that responsibility, I think haunted Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa. His family had been an illustrious and, and highly respected family hundreds of years ago. But by the time his father finally died in the 1930s, there was virtually nothing left of the estate. It had been eaten up in the courts. He inherited uh, his beloved Casa Lampedusa, uh, which was later bombed in the war, uh, and, and a very, very modest amount of money from some rents, and that's it. And he was, you know, he was conscious of the fact that, that the Lampedusa, the Tomasi fortunes had declined um, beyond a point of return. Uh, he had no children, and he understood the line would die with him. And I think he felt that he had failed all those great ancestors that he revered who had come before him. And so I believe that in those last years, not just the writing of the book, but the adopting of his, of his um, second cousin, who becomes his, his, uh, his dear friend, Giochino, who's of course much younger, he was in his early 20s, uh, as his adopted son. I, I think both of these acts were, were ways for him to, and it sounds so strange, but ways for him to live again and return to life uh, even in the years as he's facing inevitable death. Mm -hmm. And it really seems like he does kind of come to life in the presence of these, these younger folks that he surrounded himself with and um, engaging with them through the lectures and going on trips with them. And it's, it's really beautiful to see. It also seems like he was toiling with this idea of happiness and and a happy ending in a way um, that, you know, there's moments where you can see him reflecting on, am I happy? And is this happiness? And I think that's a question that many of us are often thinking about and trying to define. How did, how do you deal with happy endings and what do you <laughs> think about them? <laughs> oh gosh. Well, um, I don't know. I, you know, an ending is, 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 I mean, an ending is, is where the story stops, you know? Uh, but it, there's another page after it and another one after. When we talk about a happy ending, it's a pausing point in, in a story where it seems like everything is resolved in a satisfactory manner to everyone's pleasure and delight. But, you know, the sun comes up the next day and new problems arise, you know? I think that that life is, is a constant thread, uh, an interweaving of, of these different kinds of challenges that we face. Uh, and I think that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time sometimes talking about happy endings as if somehow in the ending, the happiness can be found. Um, but I, I think that it has more to do with your outlook as you're facing the challenges that you're going through. I do believe that in those last years, Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa found a kind of happiness but his life was not without peril and it was not without its hardship and it was not without extraordinary disappointments and fear as he understood that he was dying. And yet he was happier then than he was in the 10 years preceding it when he was not sick uh, and he's still at his house, his beloved house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about uh, your trip to Italy and the research you did there and, and what, it, what kind of an impact that had on you and in, on the writing. Sicily was beautiful. Um, I, you know, it, it was it was absolutely gorgeous. I traveled there late in the process, so I, I'd already written the book and rewritten it, and I had a strong idea of what I needed to see, and I think that that helped. Uh, I couldn't go for very long, um, but I, I I managed to see all the things that I needed to see. Uh, I had I was lucky that I I had a lovely guide, Francesca, 
to take me around. Um, and she managed to arrange for me to repeat. There were, there were several things that were important for me to see, but one of them was I really wanted to follow in Giuseppe's footsteps when he took a trip uh, in the in the mid fifties to go see Palma de Montechiaro, which is a, a town um, down on the, the, the Southern coast of, of Sicily which uh, is the ancestral seat of the Tomasi family. He was the Duke of that town. And just off the island, or just off the coast, you can almost sort of see in the haze, the island of Lampedusa, uh, which is of course the island that he, his family, he became the prince of. And that was really important to me. And that trip was a significant trip for um, Giuseppe, uh, in part because he had never been there. He had never visited this place. His father had never visited this town. It was not unusual in Sicily for the aristocrats to live in Palermo, to travel up and down Italy and, 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 the, and the continent, and yet never go out and visit the lands that they were presumably the, the, the owners and lords and, 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 and masters of, and simply just to collect the rents. And the Tomasi had become one of those families. So he went there and he found himself, he didn't want to go, but, but Lissy's wife urged him to go. And he went and he was extraordinarily moved by what he had seen. And he had been trying to write this novel that wasn't going anywhere. And I believe the things he saw on that trip helped him find a way forward into the rest of the book. And I wanted to follow in his footsteps. The only problem was uh, in Palma de Montechiaro, it's hard to get into the cathedral, which was very important, built by um, the Tomasi. And it's even harder to get into the convent, which is still a cloister convent. Uh, but Giuseppe had gone in there because he was the, the Duke of the town. And you have to make um, very special arrangements, which can be very difficult when you're in Canada, in order to try to get access to the castle, which is now locked up, the Tomasi Castle. But Francesca, my wonderful guide, had managed to get permission for us to go into all of these places, including the convent. So I got to see with my own eyes and walk across the same floors that Tomasi had walked, all these places that had changed the course of his life in such an important way. And that was so moving to me. And some of the, the, the anecdotes that were told to me on that trip were remarkable. In the cathedral, there are these gorgeous marble pillars. It's not a large cathedral, uh, but it is, it is quite ornate and, and stunning by, by my standards, at least. But the, there are these beautiful marble, pink marble pillars and the guide that we had, who was the, the deputy mayor of the town who was taking us around, uh, he, he pointed out that when Giuseppe Tomasi had come through in the 50s, he couldn't stop talking about these pillars because they were simply painted. It wasn't real marble. And he loved, he loved the fact that his ancestors had skimped uh, on, on these, these pillars in order to try to keep affording to build this, this beautiful cathedral. And then we went into the, the convent and I was shown the, one of the great stories in, in the Tomasi family lore is that the daughter of one of the, the earliest dukes went into that convent uh, to hide herself away because they were a very, very um, devout family back in those days. And she was confronted by the devil and the devil apparently picked up a big rock and threw it at her head. And then the Archangel Michael appeared and froze it in midair uh, and scolded the devil and the devil fled. Whatever you think of that story, what's interesting is that they've kept that stone, that rock that was thrown in her head, uh, and it's still there. And I got to see this very large rock, you know, the smooth, large rock, which is set behind a, a mesh grill locked away from, from, from curious fingers, uh, which was very fascinating to me. 
So I, you know, the, the entire trip was, was gorgeous. I, I wasn't, one of the things that surprised me the most was how familiar it all felt. I didn't know walking through those spaces, if I would feel like I had got everything wrong in my imagining and dreaming of this, of this particular Sicily, because the Sicily I'm writing about is from, you know, half a century ago. Uh, and I was surprised to find that so much was, was, was as I had imagined it. Uh, but those, those little moments, like the, the painted pink pillar, walking through the palazzo with Giochino as he was showing me this gorgeous palazzo and describing the state of abject destruction that it had been in back in the 50s, which I wasn't aware of. The, the, those small, tiny little details, I don't know that they make a big difference in the book, but they made a big difference for me as a writer in the dreaming of the book. Yeah. Yeah. The other uh, piece I wanted to ask you about was, of course, the the book includes uh, Giuseppe. He's struggling with the writing of the book. And we often see the depiction of the creation of art uh, in books and movies. And sometimes it's quite inaccurate. And I wondered if you relied a little bit on your own experiences uh, for for describing the writing process that Giuseppe was going through. Yeah, that was important. That was a, that was a big conversation that I had with Martha, um, my Canadian editor. Uh, the, you know, when you watch a movie and, and it's about writers, inevitably it's really about their drinking or their romances. Uh, and then every once in a while you'll get the writer and, and, you know, it'll be a montage with music behind it and she'll be typing and then she'll look out the window and then she'll pull out some pages and crumple them up across the floor. And all this takes about 20 seconds. And then at the end of the 20 seconds, she has her book. And, you know, I understand the impulse and the idea is that it's not that interesting to watch somebody write a book that takes years, you know, because it's just, it's, it looks like a lot of the same stuff. It doesn't seem very dramatic, but I actually, you know, I fall a little bit on, on the other side. I find watching labor, watching work fascinating and watching the incremental step-by-step uh, uh, -step process in which something is created or built or dismantled or whatever it is. I, I, I really find that there's a natural rhythm and drama in it for a viewer. And I think that Hollywood is selling the, the idea of process a little bit short. Uh, and when I was writing this book, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to try to capture my experience of writing. Now, of course, I, I couldn't write a, a, an entire book in which Giuseppe is just writing sentences because there's, you know, it's, there's much more to be said about his life. But I wanted, when the writing was being explored, I wanted it to feel authentic for me. Yeah. And it's hard to know what other writers' experiences would be. Yeah. But I, 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 one of the things that I kept bringing in, you know, I, I find that when I'm writing a book, when I finish my work for the day and I leave the desk and I go back into my life, the book is still being written in my head. It's still going on in the back there. And there, there are problems or, or tricky spots that I, I haven't been able to solve during the day's work. And then the solution might come to me out of the blue, unbidden, because it's still been figuring itself out in my head, even though I'm no longer thinking about it. And so it's constantly, you, you, I find I, I constantly have this feeling that I'm, I'm being, almost like being gifted these little solutions, these little ideas that seem to come out of nowhere. And I have to run for a piece of paper and write this down really quickly so I don't lose it and then come back and work it in the next day. And I wanted that experience of, of, of um, it's, it feels like you're finding something, an image or an idea or a solution just out of the blue. And when, when it happens, often it's triggered by something else that the, the connections aren't explicit, at least in the book. So often um, when such moments happen in the book, 
if you were to read around it, you would see little echoes of it in the actual experience of where Giuseppe is or what somebody has said to him two pages before. Uh, these little things where, where the fuse for the bomb has been set and it takes a couple of pages for it to go off. Thanks so much to Stephen for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our wonderful, lovely listeners, for listening, subscribing, sharing, talking about, and so on. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to listen and talk about what we do. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website. You will find links to acceptance speech videos and more information about this year's winners and finalists. Our website is bcyukonbookprizes.com. If you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Julie Flett, who won the Lieutenant Governor's Award for Literary Excellence this year, and her book, Birdsong, was nominated for the Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.